Good morning. Welcome to Southridge Baptist Church. We are excited to have you here. Hopefully you have not made the same mistake of trying to bless your wife in such a way. We're in the middle of our marriage series and we're kind of jumping through just different couples in the Bible and exploring them as together we work on our relationships and our marriages, asking God to do a work not only inside of us, but then also in our marriage relationships. One of the sacred uh, best relationships and we want to make sure that we have strong marriages and we encourage others to see what a great marriage can look like. And we're going to go right back to Genesis. We kind of kicked off in Genesis. We're going to go right back there. Uh, We didn't quite get to finish it up, so we're going to go to Genesis chapter number three. Genesis chapter number three, and if you have your Bibles, it'll be in Genesis three. If not, open up your worship guide to copy the scripture. It'll be there. It'll also be up on the screen. This series has been great. It's been exciting to see what God's doing in your hearts and in your lives, and uh, just the good reports we've heard about it, and so we're looking forward to all that God has in store for us today. Well, this message is called the source of the struggle. You say, what do you mean the source of the struggle? I think too often we can deal with a lot of the symptoms in marriage and um, people can get real discouraged and they can say, well, well, the, the, my spouse is not quite treating me like I want and this is happening and maybe we just need more time alone or maybe we need more of a date night. Maybe we're just overwhelmed with work or, or my, my spouse is just really not great at communication. And what happens is we start dealing with a lot of the symptoms that are in a relationship, in a marriage relationship, but we don't get to the actual core. We don't get to the source. We kind of just hover around over, over the symptoms instead of saying, God, what is the real core issues in our relationship that we need to deal with? Because oftentimes it's really easier just to kind of deal with some of the symptoms. It's easier to just say, you know what? My husband's just lazy and he just won't ever get up. And we just address instead of saying, what's the root issue of that? Or, you know what? My wife just doesn't respect me and just that just causes all the problems in our relationship. And we never get to what's driving that because there's always a source for what's driving this struggle. There's a source of what's driving the struggle in a relationship. And too often you can go on online or you can open up a book or you can listen to Dr. Phil and they're going to give you some great tips on dealing with the symptoms. And that's the problem today. You can go into the self-help section or the relationship section at Barnes and Nobles or on Amazon and you can see literally thousands of books on how to deal with symptoms. But isn't it amazing? It seems like relationships aren't necessarily getting better. It's because we're missing that we need to deal with the source. We need to get to the very heart of things. And this is why I'm, I'm not quite ready to leave Genesis chapter number three because this is the first marriage relationship. This is the first relationship and we're going to see their struggles. We're going to see what they work through and how they deal with things. And we're going to dive into this passage of scripture this morning. And sometimes when I approach a message, I kind of have in the back of my mind, I have two thoughts. Sometimes when we approach a message, I want to approach it kind of like a locker room. You say, what do you mean a locker room? Kind of it's halftime and the coach's job once at halftime to kind of rally the troops, to kind of get them excited to go into the second half of the football game, basketball game, baseball game, whatever it may be, and to win, right? And sometimes that's what a Sunday morning message needs to be. It needs to be to encourage Christ followers to this week, to go back into this week, to love God fervently, to care about your spouse, to love your family, and be passionate about God. So sometimes the message is going to be more locker room. Today is probably going to be a little bit more classroom. Classroom is a little bit more nuts and bolts, a little bit more practical, a little bit more, hey, I need to take some notes. I may need to engage a little bit more. I need to focus in on the message. And so it's my desire that you are, you are ready, that you're excited about what God has for us. And you say, well, I, I'm kind of sleepy. I'm kind of tired. And I don't know if I'm all that ready. It's okay. I've been praying all week that God would use it. Okay. So I know God's going to bless your heart as we dive into this passage. Let's go to Genesis chapter number three. And we haven't done this in a while. Can we stand out of the respect for the word of God? We're going to begin reading verse number six. We won't stand long, beginning in Genesis chapter six, verse number three. Here's what the Bible says. And we're kind of picking it up right after Adam and Eve were created, and then we see where the serpent came in and tempted Eve, and that's where we're starting at, verse number six. And the Bible says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves 
aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And I don't know if there's any more silly term. Here's a God of the universe, and they're trying to hide from him. I don't know if some of you remember playing hide-and-go-seek with maybe your younger children, and they're not great at hiding, so half of their body's hiding under the bed. The other half is giggling. The legs are hanging out. Or they're trying to hide behind curtains, and half their body is, like, shaking and shivering. And then when you say out loud, I wonder where they could be, then they say, I'm over here. You know, it's, it's almost that silly. It's like, really, Adam, the best place you could hide is in the trees, but Adam's going for it, and he's going to try to hide from God. Verse number 9, And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree whereof I commanded you that you should not eat? Now, here is the moment where Adam can really just shine as a man. This is the moment that he could just kind of lead the way as the first man. Just, hey, here's how you respect and love and adore your spouse. And at this point, Adam should have said something like, Yeah, God, I just blew it. I ate of the one thing. You had one rule, God. You didn't have 10 rules. You didn't have a dozen rules, God. You just had one rule. Don't eat that tree. And God, I blew it, and I blew it for my spouse, and and I'm sorry. And, and, And just let all of your wrath and judgment be poured out on me. But that's not what he does. Matter of fact, he kind of does the exact opposite. He knows he's busted. But he's not going down by himself, is he? He's like, if I'm going down, you coming with me. And Eve should have said, hey, snitches get stitches. But she doesn't say that, okay? Instead, here's what what happens, okay? Let's pick it up. Verse number 12. And the man said, the woman that you gave me, God. This ain't my fault. <laughs> no, no, no. If she's got a five finger discount problem, she just can't keep her hand to herself, and I can't take her nowhere. She always does this, okay? And immediately he's blaming the woman. But he doesn't just stop. He says this, and he said, The woman that you gave to be with me, she gave of me, and I did eat. It's almost like Adam saying this. It's like, Actually, God, this isn't my fault. It's your fault and her fault. So you two talk it over, and when you guys work it out, you come apologize to me. That's kind of his attitude. It's like, you guys got me into this problem, and when you guys straighten it out, you can come to me and beg my forgiveness. Now, it seems funny that Adam does this. But if we're real honest, we've all done it. I can't tell you how many times I've tried to play this exact same game with my own spouse. Like, no, 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 you set me up for this. You you should have told me that it was our anniversary, and you should have been warning me by sending me messages, and you should have given me a heads up. You should have dropped little hints. So it's not my fault that I didn't buy anything or think about it or prepare for it. It's really your fault. So when you apologize to me, then we can have a nice anniversary. And we say, well, that's, that's, no, no, that's not how it works. This is all on you, buddy. And this is Adam. Instead of coming clean, he doesn't. He simply blames somebody else. Verse number 13. And you would think maybe the woman as the first woman, you know, uh, the first feminist would have said, you know what? Yeah, this dude doesn't want to take responsibility. Yeah, yeah, I'll own up for it. Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll come clean. Yeah, I'll set the record straight. I'll show people how it's supposed to be done. But what does she do? No, 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 no. She follows suit. She's a fast learner. In verse number 13, the Bible says, and the Lord said unto the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I did eat. This marriage is going to have all kinds of issues. And immediately, what do they want to do? Instead of dealing with the source, they want to deal with the symptoms. And with that thought in mind, let's go to Lord a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, We love you. We pray right now that you would use this message. I pray you speak to hearts. Help us to deal with the root issues, the symptoms. And I know sometimes when we deal with these these things that are buried deep, it's very painful. It's hard because some of us, we're entrenched in, it's not just years of this habitual behavior. It may be generational. There may be some things that we grew up in a home where we saw these things happen or we're accustomed to it because of our environment. But I pray today that you would break us free from these struggles. I pray today that we would find life, that we would find health, that we'd find the help that we need, not only to have just better relationships, but for some people here, this message can be very practical in their life. And I pray that you'd speak to hearts. We love you, Father. Pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... 
Amen. Now, before you sit down, don't, don't, don't sit down, just sit down. I need you to find five people and say good morning to them. Five people, and then you can be seated. Find five people and greet them. Have a seat. Good to have you here this morning. Glad that you're uh, able to be here. Hopefully you grabbed a cup of coffee or a water bottle on your way in. We're talking about the source of the struggle. The source of the struggle. And let's dive right into it. Number one, the source happens really when we abandon our roles. You say, what do you mean? Notice again, if you would, verse number nine. Here, Adam, from the very get-go, God sets Adam up as the, uh, uh, the father of all the living. He sets him up as the patriarch. He sets him up to have dominion. He sets him up to be the ruler. He sets Adam up to win. But immediately, with all that power, with all that influence, with all that position, what does Adam do with it? Adam immediately abandons it. He's just out of there. Instead of stepping up to the plate and being the man that God has called them to, we see Adam missing in action. See, the, the, the serpent comes to Eve, deceives her, and she falls. But the entire time, you're probably wondering what I'm wondering. Where is Adam in all this? Why isn't he speaking up? Where is he in this situation? And I think too often that can happen in our own relationships. We get married, and as soon as we get married, we kind of think, well, hey, I've hooked him. I've hooked her. It's kind of a done deal. And so now I can just kind of revert back to past behavior. I can revert back to old habits, or I can just kind of let things go. And I I don't have to be on my guard as much. And I don't have to be um, always on my best behavior. Because haven't you noticed that modern dating is basically who can lie the best? I mean, you don't really tell the person what you really like. I mean, come on, we know that's a recipe for disaster. You've got that friend, or you've got that, that, that sister friend, that girlfriend, and they always come to you, and they're always crying on Monday morning. You're like, girl, bro, what happened? And they're like, well, I just, I just was me on the date. And you're like, oh boy, how much of me were you? Like, how real were you? I just bared my heart and soul. No, 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 no. You don't do that. You know, that's 101 textbook. Don't tell them everything about you. You didn't tell them about your weird foot fungus, did you? Yeah. You didn't tell them about your mother, did you? Yeah. You went, wow. And we could just see they just bear everything. And instead of saying, wait, I'm going to hold these things back. And what we do today is we do very much the same thing. We kind of think, well, once again, into a relationship now, I'll just kind of abandon these things. And I'm just, I, I acted one way to get her or I acted one way to get him. And now, now I don't have to. Now I can, I can ease up. And maybe that's what Adam was thinking. But in Genesis chapter number one, at the very beginning, in verse number 26, when we see the creation of man. And if you have your Bible, would you turn there? Because I just need you to see a verse. Genesis chapter number one, verse number 26. As I began to study for this message, I saw this verse. And it kind of jumped out at me as a very powerful and important verse. One that I began to circle and underline as I prepared for this message. Because the Bible says this. And God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness. And let them have dominion. If you have a Bible or you have some type of electronic device that can keep notes, I need you to highlight or circle that word dominion. God is saying to the man, I have given you dominion. The word dominion means to subjugate by force, to take control. It's a military term, and this is the role that God has given to Adam. Hence, God has given to the men. That God has given to us the role of dominion. Now, God gets really specific about what this dominion covers in verse 26. He says, I have given him dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth. And then notice this, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Isn't that interesting? That God says, hey, I've given you dominion over all the earth. But then God gets very specific. Let's play a little game for just a second. Would a horse be a creeping thing? It's okay. You can answer out loud. No. Would a dolphin be a creeping thing? No. Would an elephant be a creeping thing? Would a snake be a creeping thing? Isn't it interesting? Two chapters before the snake ever appeared, it's almost like God is saying to Adam, hey, heads up. 
Something's going to happen, and I need you to know your position. I need you to know that your position includes power to overcome the circumstance. You see, God will never tell you to do something or ask you to do something that you cannot do. So when God said to Adam that, guess what? You have dominion over all creation to subdue it. Guess what? The power came with it. So Adam is getting warned that there's going to be some creeping things and it's his job to subjugate it, to take power over it, to, by military force to make sure it doesn't happen. So when the snake comes to Eve, Adam should have stepped in and been like, hey, babe, hold on, back up. Macho man is here. Like, I don't have an S because I don't have any clothes, but that's all right. Just pretend there's an S right here, okay? I'm going to take care of this snake for you, and then you and I will go find another tree to eat. But instead, he doesn't do that with this creeping thing. Instead, Adam just abandons his role. His role was to step in and be the leader in that home, but he's not stepping in and being the leader in that home. Matter of fact, he's just gone passive. I say it like this. There's two ways to ruin a car. There's one way, and not that I'm speaking from experience, is to drive it off a cliff. That would kind of total your car. Okay, I am speaking from experience on that one. But that's all right. The second way would be to get a new vehicle and to never change the oil. You'll go, what, 30,000, 40,000 miles? All of a sudden, start running really rough. It's just going to start cranking over really weird. It's not going to be as smooth of a ride. It's a brand new car. It's, I've only, it's only got 30,000 miles, but it's just running really rough. It's not smooth. What's going on with this car? It's called neglect. See, there's two ways to ruin your relationship, to ruin your marriage. You can drive it off a cliff and just kind of end it, ruin it. You can just kind of do something incredibly stupid. That's one way to ruin it. The other way is to just neglect it, to just do nothing about it. I think more often than not, the latter is what happens in most marriages, in most relationships. They die because of neglect. Someone went looking for something else. Why? Because they weren't getting fulfilled in the present relationship. And so since they weren't getting the fulfillment they were looking for, they were being neglected. All of a sudden, it was easy to look for something else. And what can happen in you and I, we can't abandon the role God has given us because God has called us to be engaged. God has called us into that relationship. And too often I see people just like with the car, never changing the oil, never doing the routine maintenance, never trying to say, hey, how are those brakes? They're kind of squeaking. Let's change that. Instead, we're just kind of going along like, what's her problem? What's his problem? The problem is that you've abandoned your role, that your role is to take care of even the small things. And here, Adam let something very small creep in. It wasn't something big. It wasn't a lion. And maybe that's the problem. Maybe it was because Adam thought it was such a small thing. Why deal with it? It's just a snake. I'm not afraid of snakes. Obviously, I married a girl who's not afraid of a snake. She's having coffee and talking to one. I mean, they're having a a good time. They're like turning into BFFs over there. And instead of engaging, instead of saying, wait a minute, God has given me authority. He's abandoned his role. I say it like this, he's gone passive. Adam represents a passive husband. And this is where it gets tough because we live in a day and age that I think we're seeing, we're reaping the benefits of passive husbands, passive men, just kind of letting things happen in our families, letting things happen in our lives. And we just think, well, it's not my problem. When it is our problem, it's time for us to re-engage And I know what happens. I know that sometimes men can just feel so beat down where it's easy just to not try. I mean, you did once try at work. Yeah, you did try in the relationship. Yeah, you did try with the children. But then the teen years hit, and it was just kind of like, how many beatdowns do I want to take? Like, I am working at this. And then it was like, you are trying to take your wife on the date. But then the one date, she just nags. Like, we don't do this enough. Wives, don't do that. The one time he takes you out, the worst thing to say is, we need to do this more often. He's like, how about let's just enjoy what we are doing. And you don't need 50,000 pictures of Instagram of your food. You've got your husband right there. Enjoy him. Take pictures of the food later. Besides, nobody cares. Like, just touch your neighbor right now. Nobody cares. Like, they really don't. They they just don't care. But yet, you're going to take all that time, and you're wasting precious moments because the babysitter said only two and a half hours, and we don't have an hour and 45 minutes for you to arrange the lighting, for you to turn something, to grab little props from other tables, to stage this little perfect Instagram photo for your 33 followers. Like, they just don't care. Matter of fact, I mean... They're looking at it just thinking, I thought you were on a date. What happened? Like, don't spend all that time. 
And so we've got these husbands that have gone passive. And Adam represents a passive husband. When God has called husbands to be the provider, to be the pastor, to be the protector of the relationship. That's our role. And it's not one we just want to abandon. We just want to pass off. Because I'll tell you this. The thing that scares me to death is the fact that if I don't do it, maybe some other man will. You say, what do you mean? Yeah, if I neglect my relationship long enough, guess what? It'll just be like that car. It'll be totaled. And then instead of me getting to spend every waking moment with my children, I get every other, every other weekend with them. And I've got to drop them off at somebody else's house. You see, we don't confront those realities. Instead, we think it's just an oil change. No, it's so much bigger in the relationship. It's so much more than that. That if I neglect my roles, then guess what? Let's look towards the future here. There, there is going to come a point when I'm going to destroy everything that I've worked so hard to attain. And if I'm going to go passive on it, then guess what? There will be somebody who says, no, no, I'll step up and be the man in the relationship. I will lead. I will love. I will listen. I will do all those L words that you want just so you're happy, so you're content. So we need to engage in the relationship. But can I say this? Wives are there to help make a weak man stronger. Did you know that's part of your role? Not to beat him down. I don't like the way your boss talks to you. We went to that party and your boss just walks all over you. And I just don't know why you don't stand up to nobody. Okay, you got beat down at work. And then on the drive home, you're going to give him a second beat down? And you're trying to encourage him to be stronger? I don't know what you're thinking. But you're not. And it's not helping. And wives, we've got to be so careful. We, like I have a lot of experience. Excuse me. Wives have to be so careful because you can bring out the best in your husband. You can bring out those things that you want to see. Call out the things that you appreciate. Call out those things. Here's the amazing thing. A guy lives for affirmation. You say, what do you mean? There's this great little song. It's called This Girl and She's My New Cheerleader. Some of you have heard of it and everything. That's really what you are. You're his cheerleader. I'll tell you what. He will slide down a slide of razor blades into a lake of lemon juice if he feels like you're his cheerleader. We're just that stupid. We'll do anything for you. We really are. You tell us that vacuuming, when we look sexy, when we're vacuuming, I'll tell you what, we will get it on with that vacuum. Like, we will just make it happen. We're flexing as we're vacuuming and everything, you know. We're showing off our guns and everything. You say, why? Because those things that you like, reward that behavior and and encourage it. Instead of, man, you don't do that enough. I'm going to take a picture of it and put it on the wall. Last time we did that was 1987 when we got married. Matter of fact, I wasn't even born in 1987. That's how long it's been. And we just kind of dog each other and beat each other down. Instead, and Eve really represents the take control wife. And I know what we're thinking. Oh, hold on. Immediately, as soon as I said the take control wife, immediately it's like the wives in here are just kind of like, no, no, you can talk about the men. But don't, don't come to the other side of the aisle. Hold on now. You just stop right there, preacher. We were having a good day at church. Till you started talking about us women folk. Like it was all good. You just, you just keep on going, Pastor. You just keep on going. I know it's some of you are like, you know, let's, 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 let's be okay. It's all right, okay? We kind of ripped on the men for just a minute. We took our medicine. Now it's the other time, other side. You see, Eve, she should have said, wait a minute. God is going to be here in a moment. And literally, right after they ate, they have a little bit of time to sew some fig leaves together. And then God shows up. Right on schedule because God walked in the cool of the day every day with Adam and with Eve. Eve couldn't have said, hey, I'm having this discussion with this snake. I've got one rule, not eat this fruit. Maybe I should consult with my husband. Maybe I should consult with God. No, I'm just going to go and do this decision. I'm just going to go for this, an emotional decision. Eve represents just the take control wife, that I'm just going to do what I want. And she was totally driven, not by a spiritual mood. She was not driven by anything else than her own emotions. Lust of the eyes, pride of life, lust of the flesh. She just wanted it. She saw it's an emotional decision. It's an impulse by decision. And she just goes for it. Instead of saying, wait a minute, God has given me a God-given role. I'm going to follow that role. So what are some of the symptoms that we're dealing with? We're going deeper. It's not just a symptom. It's the fact that we need to get to the deep undergirding struggles. One of the struggles is we, in relationships, we abandon our God-given roles. God-given role as a man and as a woman. We need to hold to those, adhere to those. Secondly, when we accuse our relationships. You said, what do you mean when we accuse our relationships? Instead of once they made the mistake, working together to correct it, immediately they picked sides. And each one was on the opposite side. 
And this is what's so dangerous as couples. We fall for this exact same mistake. Notice if you would, verse number 11 of Genesis chapter number three. Here's exactly what happens. God comes to Adam and says, Adam, hey, who told you you were naked? What happened? And immediately, verse number 12, and the man said, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the tree and I did eat. It's not my fault. He begins to start blaming. Andy Stanley said it so well, and I'm gonna repeat it. You cannot blame your way into a better relationship. You can't do it. You can't blame your spouse. You can't blame the boyfriend or girlfriend and think the relationship's going to get better. You see, blame is not a strategy to change anything. It's a strategy to make sure nothing changes. That's the strategy. And too often, that's what we do. You didn't get the dinner reservation. You didn't get me the gift. You don't listen. You're not taking care of the kids. And all of a sudden, instead of saying, wait a minute, how can we work together? You just pick sides and you start blaming one another. And immediately, as soon as blame comes into the relationship, you mark it down. The relationship is not going forward. There is no ground. You're not gaining ground in that relationship. As soon as you even hint at it that somebody else is blaming somebody else, that's the moment where you've got to stop and say, wait a minute, why are we blaming each other? We need to deal with this. But if we're on opposite sides, then it's winner and loser. Somebody's got to win, somebody's got to lose. And we've got too much pride, nobody wants to lose. And so we've got to step back and say, wait a minute, I don't want to give in to this pride. I don't want to give in to where I'm blaming somebody else. Here's the dangerous thing about blame. Blame sets you up for repeat performance. You say, what do you mean repeat performance? You see, blame is another way to excuse our behavior, is it not? We're just trying to excuse our behavior. Adam messed up. He abandoned his role. But instead of coming clean, because a good rule is when you mess up, you fess up. Touch your neighbor and say, when you mess up, fess up. When you mess up, fess up. When you mess up, fess up. Instead of Adam doing that, instead of saying, you know what, God, you're right. I just blew this thing up. I'm sorry. Is there a way we can fix it? Instead, he immediately wants to kind of accuse somebody and then excuse his own behavior. Like it's not his fault. He began to cover things up. What does that do? He's not dealing with the struggle. Instead, he's setting himself up to repeat the performance. Because we don't deal with our heart issues. We're going to repeat those issues. So we've got to say, wait a minute, in my relationship, is this something that just keeps on going and going? And in our relationships, if you were to just think back and don't get upset, sometimes when you think back, you can just all of a sudden those emotions come up and then, man, you just grab your, and you squeeze their hand, and you elbow them or something. No, no, but just think back. A lot of our issues are habitual. They keep resurfacing. And that reveals that there's a cycle in the relationship that we've got to break. There's a cycle, and this is kind of on repeat. And a lot of it is due to the fact that we have set ourselves up for repeat performance. Some of you have the exact same arguments, the exact same fights about the exact same things. And instead of saying, hey, we need to deal with something here, we're just excusing and then accusing somebody else. So we need to deal with it. We need to deal with the fact that we've got some issues. One person wisely said, if you accept someone else's rationalization of their problems, you're accepting their problem. If you accept somebody's rationalization of the problem, you're accepting their problem. That's what's really hard, especially sometimes being a pastor and understanding what somebody else is going through. Because sometimes my understanding is conveyed as acceptance. And it's not. I'm not accepting of somebody who will not come out from a drug culture, will not get free of that bondage. And I'm using drugs as an illustration here. We could get more specific. But they are saying, man, I just can't fight it. I just can't beat it. So I just, I just kind of give in. And I know I shouldn't instead of dealing with it. And if we accept their behavior, we're really accepting their problem. We're saying, okay, that's just how it is. You're an alcoholic, and I guess that's just part of you. Your daddy was. And if we accept their rationalization, because everybody's got a rationalization, there's a reason why you say, I'm just, I just have a temper, and I just flare up because mom did or dad did, and we were just in a home that was very vocal. Because some of you, you grew up in a home that was very vocal. Some of you grew up in a home that was not vocal at all. You're kind of more like a teapot, and it just kind of simmers. And eventually one day it just blows up. You're just that kind. 
And instead of dealing with it, I can almost deal with the vocal a little bit more than I can the teapot because you never know when that's going to go off. Like that's just a ticking time bomb. It's just going to explode. You could be at Disneyland and that thing explode. You can be at church and that thing explode. You could be on a date and that thing's just going to explode. It won't take much because why? They don't deal with it. It's just seething. It's just there. And you could be anywhere and it's just going to explode. And you wish there was a little red warning light on their neck or something that would like give you a warning like duck for cover or run to the restroom or like hurry up get on a ride or hurry up get the check or something before you make a scene but no it just goes off and there you are making a scene there you are saying something doing something you're not happy of why because you've accepted somebody else's rationalization blame another powerful thing about blame blame allows you to sneak your issues into your future blame says i'm not going to deal with this so i'm going to carry it with me Setting myself up for repeat performance, but also it allows me to take that issue into my future. How many of you want to keep going with those habits and those problems in your relationship? I don't think anybody here is like, yeah, we fight about this, we fight about money, and we just always do, and we're just, just never going to stop. No, you're, because you're not dealing with the struggle, you're taking that issue into your future. You're, instead of dealing with the issue, you've just got it and you're just leaving it. And we all have issues. Each and every one of us have these hidden issues. And really, the issue is you. That's the reality. The issue is you. And I know that seems really mean. I know it seems really tough. But that's what we got to get to. That it's not my spouse. It's not my children. It's not my job. It's not my boss. It's not God. It's nobody but me. And Adam refused to get to that point. He refused to just own up. And Eve did the exact same thing. She followed suit. She said, well, if he's going to do it, then I'm going to do it. And if he's going to excuse his behavior, I'll excuse my behavior. And I see so many couples. They say, well, when he apologizes, then I'll apologize. Okay, so you want to just keep taking that issue into your future then? You mean instead of dealing with this right and, and properly, you just want to keep it, letting it fester and keep taking it into your future? No, let's deal with this. Let's call it out. Let's bring it out to the surface. But instead, we don't. And for some of us, we get really upset about this blame. How many of you ever said to your spouse, "Hun, you're overreacting. Anybody ever said that? You don't have to raise your hand. I know that'd be like, uh, no, I'm not going to do that. Just look forward. Act like nothing happened. Act, you know, just like, oh, my wife, never. Uh-uh, No never overreacts. It's funny when we do that, that when we say, honey, you're overreacting, or, or maybe, maybe you've made the mistake of saying, honey, you're acting like your mother. That's reason to have a near-death experience right there. Like, you're just asking for it at that point. Like, you say that word, and it's over. I mean, you will see bright lights. You'll wake up in the ER. I mean, that's, that's just, you're pushing it there. But it's amazing. You say, well, well, it's such a small thing, and I just was trying to call my wife that she's just overreacting about this thing. Write this down in your notes. You are a buffalo. Men are buffaloes. Women are butterflies. And I told you this is going to be very classroom. You say, what in the world? You see, wives, the reason your husband is saying, why are you overreacting? It's not a big deal. It's because he's a buffalo. And if you take a little pebble or a little rock and you set it on a buffalo... Does the buffalo move, flinch, do anything? No. It doesn't even affect the buffalo. Like he could care less because he's a buffalo. You take that small, tiny pebble, little thing, and you put it on a butterfly, what happens? Butterfly can't fly. Can't do what God's created to do. And until men, we see that our wives are butterflies, that they're fragile, they're delicate, and even the smallest little thing can upset their equilibrium, we need to understand that it's not worth saying. I can't just blame this on them. I can't just, I can't expect them to take what I've been created by God to take. There's a reason why that when other women talk to other women, they're always saying, oh, and giving hugs and saying, are you okay? And then you find out like somebody died and they're like, no, she broke a nail. What? You were ooing and aahing and hugging over a broken nail. It's why? Because women understand that they're butterflies. Like, you just know. You just kind of sense it innately. Where men are like, dude, you got a broken leg. That's awesome. Let me kick it. Let me poke it. Let me touch it. You know, that is cool. Let me take a selfie with your broken leg. The bone's sticking out. This is awesome, man. Let's just, how men, why? Men are buffaloes, so we can just take these things. So when a husband says, I'm going to blame my wife, you need to understand the burden you're putting on her. 
you need to understand how that crushes her spirit. And when you understand how God created you, that's why men were created to take the brunt of things. That's why we're created to say, yeah, subjugate this. Take dominion over the home. Yes, we're created to deal with the moody teenager. That's just our role. I don't need to complain about it. It's our role to work 50, 60, 70 hours a week. That's just our role. It's our role to protect the house. It's just our role to take the second job. It's just our role to fix the house. It's just our role to step up for our wife. It's just our role to be the spiritual leader. It's just our role to step up when the children are acting out. It's just our role to grab the vacuum when somebody needs to vacuum. It's just our role to man up and do the dishes. It's just our role to man up and say, I will cook dinner. It's just our role to man up and say, I will do the yard. It's just our role to man up and say, I don't want you to have to work the second job. It's just our role to step up and be the man that God created us to be. That's just our role. And too often, we want to pawn it off to somebody else when you need to understand who God created you to be. And I know I'm raising the bar, and I know I'm putting the challenge out there, but I'm tired of men acting like victims and acting like you're so weak when God created you so much more than that. When God did not create you so you could get on Facebook and whine and complain about the woman in your life. Are you kidding me? That's not what we need to be doing. When God said, I created you in a certain way, you can handle it. You can step into that relationship, stop crying about it, stop whining about it, and you man up and you lead that relationship. That's what God put it in your life. And I know this is hard. I know this isn't easy. Come on, church, I've been wrestling with this all week. This whole thought, Jane and I, we're just having so many conversations about it. I even put this in your notes. Conflict is not difficult in a relationship. It's the conversations that you need to have. And some of us maybe need to step back and say, I'm sorry to our spouse because we have not been treating her like we should be. And maybe you, ma'am, have not been treating him like you should be. This is a two-way street. We're dealing with the deep struggles. And I know it's not always very pleasant. Let's go to the third one. The third one, here's what we see. Notice in verse number 16. So all of a sudden, God comes and God begins to give what is called the Abrahamic covenant. In verse number 16, the Bible says, Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception sorrow. Thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to your husband, and he shall rule over you. The biggest mistake I think I ever made in my marriage was the time when I said to my wife, Jane, you are to submit. All of a sudden, you want to talk about a mama bear, like, coming out? Like, it's, it's out. I mean, it's, it's on. We will rumble in the jungle. It's going down. It's not going to be pretty. And, and it's because I never understood what Scripture's actually talking about. Because we see this verse that, there it is. A lot of guys are like, new life verse, rule over her. Yes, excellent. You know what that means, baby. Like, let's pray right now. Pack it up, preacher. I, I, I got my word for the week now, and I'm going to go home, and we got some new scripture to memorize, wife. This is what we're going to memorize. We're going to focus family devotions on this scripture right here. You memorize it. You put it on your forehead. You do whatever you need to do, but this is our new life verse for the family. Family motto, rule over her. Except for the fact that this is the Abrahamic covenant. Meaning, and let me get really deep theologically for a second. We don't live under the Abrahamic covenant. We live under a new covenant that was established by Jesus Christ, according to Hebrews chapter number 6. The new covenant we find in Ephesians chapter number 5, and I need you to go there. Ephesians chapter number 5, I need you to see something in Scripture. That unless you understand that your relationship will continue to have these ongoing struggles, and you're going to just kind of be dealing with the symptoms. You're going to spend thousands of dollars on counseling. You're going to spend thousands of dollars on books. You're going to spend thousands of dollars on retreats. Instead of understanding your position and where God puts you in line with the marriage covenant and where God wants you. Ephesians chapter number five, verse 21, the Bible says this, submit yourselves each other out of reverence for God. The very next verse says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. And immediately, some of you guys are like, yes, it's in the Old Testament and it's in the New Testament. What? Drop the mic. That's, that's it. You know, we're just like, that's what I want right there. No. Verse 21 sets up the rest of the passage in context, okay? We can't cherry pick verses however we want, okay? We've got to take the context of God's thoughts, what the original writers wanted to imply. And in verse number 21, he's implying the subject of submission. He's implying that the rest of this passage has to do with submission. Now, submission is not obedience. They're two different things. So don't think submission and obedience are the same. Submission is not that. 
Submission is preferring somebody else before yourself. That's what submission is. It's saying, hey, I'm willing to take second place so you can have first place. And then the apostle Paul gets specific in who should submit. But he starts in the first verse, verse 21, and he's saying, hey, all of you submit yourselves to each other. Why? Out of reverence to God. He gives who we're supposed to submit to and why we're supposed to submit. We're not supposed to submit so there could be harmony in the home. And a lot of people suppose and even say things like, honey, if you would submit, this home would run a whole lot better. We would be a whole lot happier. There'd be a whole lot more joy if you would just submit to what my authority and my agenda. That's not what he's saying. The reason we submit is not for a happy home. The reason we submit is out of reverence for, what does the passage say? God. We do this to God. And then the apostle Paul goes on some specifics. He says, the wives, you're supposed to submit yourselves to your husbands. And husbands, you're supposed to submit yourselves to your wives. Now, aside from talking about money in the church, this is probably the other most unliked passage of scripture because we just don't understand submission. We just don't understand how it's supposed to work and we get all frustrated by it. But I need you to understand submission because it kind of is the crowning jewel on what we've been talking about this morning. How many of you, when you drive a car, you've seen the yellow yield sign? Can you hold up your hand? You've seen the yellow yield sign. The thing what's so important about those yellow yield signs, it means that if you don't yield, there's going to be a collision with another vehicle. Somebody must yield. There's a warning. It's a yellow light. Before you get to the to where the two lanes are going to merge, you know it's coming. You're looking over your shoulder, left shoulder or right shoulder. You're making sure I'm not going to hit anybody and nobody's going to hit me. And if you have to slow down, you slow down. Unless you have a faster car than them, you speed up, all right? If you're in a Prius, please stop trying to speed up. Like, just do us all a favor. Just stop it, all right? You've got nothing in the car, all right? So anyway, that's just my little tirade right there. So you just keep on going or you slow down, okay? Now, the great thing about the yield sign, it helps usually, except for the east side, avoid a lot of traffic, okay? You go to the east side, nobody knows what those signs are for, okay? So, but in life, submission is our yield sign. Submission is God's yield sign. Because if you don't yield, there's going to be a collision in the relationship. If you don't submit, there's going to be a collision. So God said, how can I help couples avoid these collisions. I'm going to put submission in there. But here's the thing about submission. We're so full of ourselves, we don't want to submit. And we start thinking things like, well, if he would just do this, then I'd submit to him. The problem is the apostle Paul doesn't say how to submit. There's no details how to apply it. He leaves the application totally up to you. Meaning, You're supposed to apply it in the Holy Spirit driven. What do you mean Holy Spirit driven? In verse number 20, the Bible says, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can't properly submit to your spouse unless you're filled with the Holy Spirit, unless you're being led by the Holy Spirit. And so he's kind of got this underlying thought that when you're submissive to the Holy Spirit, you will live out of this yieldedness. We will live out of this. So I need you to see something. Paul's teaching us that our response should be in relationship and the reason for the response, he gives it to us. But then he says, submission is personal. Meaning, it's never my job to make sure my wife is living in submission. And it's never my wife's job to make sure I'm living in submission. It's personal. So right now, you want to help your relationship? Don't ever tell them to submit. But you model submission. It's not our job to make sure somebody else is submitting. It's just not. The Apostle Paul is not implying. He is simply saying, hey, wives, this is how you should. Hey, husbands, you should submit like Christ submitted to the death of the cross. Husbands, that is the degree that you're supposed to submit and love your wife. That's the illustration that he gives us. And submission is personal. But the Bible is not saying or implying that it's the man's job to ensure that his wife is submitting. But wives, God never intended for a wife to be submissive to an unloving husband. That's why the Apostle Paul goes to great lengths to show that husbands love your wives. Love them like Christ loved the church. And Christ loved the church so much that he was willing to be beaten with whips. He was willing to take a crown of thorns. He was willing to be stripped. He was willing to have his clothes stolen and then sold or gambled in front of him. He was willing to hang on a cross and die for other people. He was willing to go through all that to demonstrate his love. And that is the picture. That is the picture of 
why a wife should be submissive, when we are living that out, when we are following that. So submission is personal. Submission is spiritual. The reason submission doesn't work is because there's not a foundation of sacrifice. We need to understand that we're sacrificing for the other. When you pray for your spouse, are you praying, Lord, make my spouse uh, uh, to be a certain way? Or are you praying, Lord, help me to be a certain way? It's easy to pray, God, change them to be this, instead of saying, God, change me to be who you want me to be. But oftentimes what we do, and instead of praying, how, Lord, how I can, I can change, we're praying that they would change. So submission, it's personal, it's spiritual. But God says submission is mutual. Verse 21, submit yourselves one to another. It's mutual submission. And here's what happens in the home. There's no mutual submission. It's lopsided. Either it's the husband always feeling like for harmony to be in the home, he's got to always submit to the wife with never reciprocating that. Or it's the wife saying, I always feel like I've got to submit to the husband. And he never reciprocates that. It's a two-way street. It's a mutual submission. And until we understand that it's mutual, you'll continue to have the struggles and the pitfalls that you're dealing with. But oftentimes what happens in a relationship, you've got a builder and then you've got the building inspector. Builders are great. Building inspectors, not so great. Why? What does the building inspector do? Walks in with the clipboard, walks in with the pencil and starts looking at your hard work and then starts making little notes. And then they start saying, mm, grunting, maybe moaning. And there's always somebody in the relationship that maybe they'll come home, look at the dinner. That's what we're having. Mm, building inspector. Or you come home, that's all you made this week. That's it. No hi, no how you doing, no hug, no kiss. Oh, the kids aren't ready to greet me. So are you the builder in the relationship or have you turned into the building inspector? Is there a mutual submission? Or are you there just thinking, hmm, you've done all this hard work to make our home work, but yet I'm going to kind of critique these things? No. You both have to be the builder in the relationship. Let God be the building inspector. But together, jointly, mutual, together, build it up. I like to say it like this. There is nourishment in encouragement. There is nourishment in encouragement. Touch your neighbor and say, there's nourishment in encouragement. Why? Encouragement is comforting. But so many times I go into a home and there's no encouragement. There's no comfort. And some of you are stepping back saying, how come our home isn't very happy? How come nobody wants to be in our home? Because there's no encouragement going on. There's no saying to your kids, hey, great job. There's no going into the home and saying, man, this dinner smells great. Hey, there's, look at the house. You cleaned this. Look at what you did. This is excellent. Hey, honey, you did a great job last quarter. Hey, this happened. You did this. There's no encouragement going on. It's so easy. It's free. It costs you nothing to encourage somebody else. But how little encouragement is happening in the average home. How little positive reinforcement is happening. Instead, we get the port card and we're saying, look at all these. You got five A's and one D. What happened there? Man, never going to make it to the school I want you to go to. Instead of encouraging them, instead of understanding that, I can have this mutual submission. Lastly, we got to wrap it up. Submission is counterculture, cultural. We live in a day and age where you have your chauvinistic male and you've got your feministic uh, woman and, and both are vying for who's going to be in charge. And so it's very countercultural. You say you're going to live in submission. It's going to, it's going to rock the boat. Hey, women, if, if, if you were to step back and say, hey, I've got to get home early. I can't spend time with the girlfriends. And they say, why? You say, well, I've got to make sure there's a meal ready. I've got to make sure the laundry's done. They're going to look at you and may say some, some, some rude things. Why? Because they're going to see that as, wait a minute, shouldn't the man be doing more of that? And I need you to understand, when you start living out submission, your home will get better, but it is countercultural. We live in a world that says, you first. Live for yourself. It's all about you, even in the marriage relationship. Put yourself first. And we dress it up, though. We say things like, oh, I just need some me time. And it sounds all really great, doesn't it? Oh, I just need some time for me. I just need to be alone, and I just, I just need this. If you need me time, if you just need to be alone, then why did you get married? I don't get it. Why are you in a relationship? You say, well, I just need some time. No, no, God brought the marriage couple together to support and encourage and refresh one another. Now you're looking for encouragement, refreshment, and, 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 and something else outside of the marriage. You're setting yourself up for a very dumb mistake. You say, why? 
That means you're looking to something else aside from your wife or your husband. Well, he just doesn't support me emotionally and she's just not there for me physically. Then you're going to find that from somebody else. You're setting yourself up. Instead of working together to say, we're going to build this thing, you can follow culture and culture is losing in marriages. They're losing right now. And instead of us saying, wait a minute, I want a marriage that lasts, we're going to have to step back and say, you know what, there's some dirty work that needs to be done. I've been neglecting my relationship. Maybe I've been blaming my relationship. And then I haven't been submissive in my relationship. And these are tough areas. These are like the big three. These are hard. These don't just happen overnight. I'm going to tell you what, you're going to start working on these three. And I don't want you to see any immediate change this week. I don't want you to expect for any immediate change this year. But don't you think in a decade, there could be some real difference made? You see, it's amazing. We underestimate what we can accomplish in a year. Or, excuse me, we overestimate what we can accomplish in a year. But we underestimate what could happen in a decade. And if you, for a decade, will live these things out, you're going to have a totally different relationship. But what happens is we're just thinking, hey, pastor, just give me something, just a quick fix. We don't have that here. If you're looking for a church for a quick fix, it's not it. Because that's the problem. We just want a quick fix, a quick hit. Let's get away from that. And let's say, what's some real principles based on scripture that if I apply and I put them to work and I work it, it'll work. And this is it. Stop neglecting your roles. Stop blaming each other. Start submitting to each other. Not just the wife, not just the husband. Mutual. Let's all stand as we close. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the morning. It's a tough message and it's a tough topic. But I pray this morning that you would speak to hearts. I pray that we would be in a weird way, even though it hurts to hear a message like this, I pray that it would bring hope and help to the couples who need it. That we would see that sometimes the marriage isn't always date night and flowers and cards and romance. Sometimes I just need to look at my own ugly heart and see where I've been a little bit selfish, seeing where I've abandoned some things, and get back to serving you. Get back to loving you. Get back to, 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 to submission. Get back to uh, not blaming my spouse. Get back to the point where I once again accept my role, and I live that out, walk that out. Pray that you would help us this week. But help us not to just get all hyped up for a week or two weeks or a month. Help us to take these notes and to practice these over the next decade. I believe we will have radically transformed relationships, radically transformed homes, radically transformed church. Lord, help us. We can't do these without you.